Good evening, everybody. My name is Patrick, and welcome to another fantastic Poison Pen podcast, a little look behind the book, so to speak. Uh, today, um, I am very, very lucky. I have got one of the mistresses of mystery, uh, one of the granddoms of paranormal um, suspense. I've got Charlene Harris. Welcome, Charlene. Uh, she is here for her newest book, The Serpent in Heaven. Hi, Patrick. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for offering to come and do this. Um, this is so exciting. A, uh, this is launch week for your book. And we've it got, is. We've got, you signed a lot of copies for us at your house, which is so very kind of you. And uh, so hopefully you don't have too bad a writer's cramp from that. Um, but congratulations on the new book, The Serpent in Heaven. This is your latest in the Gunny Row series. It is a fantastic book. I got to say you left me um, up way too late last night. And I've got to say from beginning to end, it was just a really, really enjoyable, fascinating read. And you lead us in with right what happened at the end of the Russian cage. Yeah, uh, that seemed to be the launching pad for what would happen in this book. Uh, and of course, this book is from a different point of view. It's from Gunny Rose's half-sister's point of view. She's at school in San Diego, which is now the Holy Russian Empire, for those of you who haven't read any of the books. And she is in training, but she is a she is a tough cookie, and she is carving her way through that school. She really is. Um, this is well, you know, high school, or I don't know if it's quite high school, maybe early college or boarding school. No matter how you look at it, it's always a little bit cutthroat, isn't it? it well, sometimes literally, uh, but she is doing her best in a completely alien environment uh and she's growing phenomenally because her father put a spell on her to keep her looking small uh and young and all of a sudden she's growing and and developing a teenage body and the fluctuating emotions that go with it and then she gets kidnapped make matters worse right out of the front to make matters worse <laughs> to quote to the great quote out of the frying pan and into the fire so to speak is what you do really do with um with your main character and and felicia sorry i was blanking on the name and i didn't want to say the wrong name uh, thank felicia, you no problem um so one of the great things about felicia is that she's an incredibly strong young lady and as you said um, starting us out from the Russian cage, uh, she really does have a very interesting background. Um, she is actually one of the bloodline from Grigory Rasputin, and she's being kept kind of under lock and key uh, within the Russian cage uh, to prevent, uh, you know, she has some very unique properties to her, to her that makes her very important politically. Yes. And we learn those along with her. She doesn't know a lot of this until this book. She finds out what family uh, 
she's really from and what the significance of that is. Exactly. And being part of the uh, kind of the Rasputin bloodline makes her incredibly important because she's one of the few people that has the ability to give uh, blood transfusions to the czar um, in yeah. order to help keep him alive because of his severe hemophilia. So you combine some really interesting aspects within your books. And what I really liked is you really dive deep. You dove very deep in the Russian cage and you dive even deeper in the serpent in heaven with giving us an idea of what uh, this Russian empire is looking like. Um, so I'm really curious, what was uh, kind of the impetus? I know we talked about it a little bit last time with the Russian cage of why you decided to carve out the Western part of the United States uh, for Russia. You know, I just really wanted to work in the imperial family. I've always been very interested in their story and I followed the excavations when they found the bodies finally. Uh, and I just thought, but what if they lived? What would have happened to them? Where would they have gone? And I thought they would probably, nobody would want them. Uh, you know, England didn't want them. And yet he and the uh, Nicholas and his cousin, the King of England, looked so much alike, you could hardly tell them apart. But England turned them down. So they would just be wandering around in a flotilla, trying to find some place to, to stay. And I thought about, uh, Hearst and how much he loved uh, colorful people and important people. And he would just light on them, I figured. I mean, I might have that wrong, but that was the way I saw it. And uh, I read a lot about the Hearst Mansion being built about that time. And I just kind of took it off from there. That's fantastic. It's, it's a fascinating bit of history. It's a very tragic bit of history associated with it. Um, and I mean, for years we were, I think a lot of people were hoping that Anastasia of all people was, was somebody who would be, you know, somehow magically saved from the um, unfortunate realities of history and whether or not she was really um, missing or was she actually dead. And um, so it's, it's a tragic bit of history, but one that's particularly fascinating. Um, especially with Rasputin. Rasputin is yeah. a fascinating uh, historical figurehead. Um, he had to make a great big play within the books. And I think it's really, he's really shaped your novels, not necessarily in the foreground, because he's always in the bit of the background, but so important to that. Um, did you do a lot of research with Rasputin and, and the entire yeah. family? I did. I did a lot of uh, a lot of research and I made copious notes. So I hope this is all credible. Rasputin was really an interesting man. He must have had a lot of charisma because he was supposed to smell very bad. Exactly. And I just uh, I can't imagine what what hold he had on so many people because he was quite a, a man for the ladies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so Felicia, of course, is, is a child of Rasputin, one of the bastard children, so to speak. Yeah, a bastard grandchild. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are certainly, I mean, Rasputin has quite a large set of ancestors nowadays. 
Um, so it's sort of fascinating to see within this series, you're sort of kind of building upon that historical premise of, of you know, where are these, where are these children, where are they now, where should they be? And of course, Felicia, um, within this novel, this, this alternate history um, <clears throat> is found in Mexico at the end of the Russian cage. Uh -huh. Like you said, she's been kept small um, magically. So she's been, prevent you've prevented her from going into puberty. And she's, uh, you know, she looks more like a young, young Hispanic boy or Mexican boy than, than a young lady. And at the end of the book, um, as it turns out, Felicia's half-sister, uh, Lizbeth or Gunny, um, which is the name of the series, Gunny Rose series, rescues her. Um, so this is where you set us up for the entire str stretch of this part of the novel um, moving forward. Um, and I've got to say, for those of you who might be a little bit concerned, you catch us up within a matter of pages if you've never read part of the Gunny Rose series. I try to. Uh, I feel like people who are just picking up a book out of that series for the first time, they deserve to have some explanation. I can't just throw them to the sharks, but I can make it as concise as possible and leave the rest to be discovered during dialogue uh, in the rest of the book because I don't want to slow the action down. These books are such action books. They really are. And you do it in a really creative way. I really appreciated the fact that it's where um, Felicia is talking with the uh, and, and, and trying on the new new garments that are being provided by the uh, kind of the school resident Taylor. I don't know if she's um, I'm trying to think of, of her uh, of the uh, what you would you would call it. She's kind of. She's more like the comptroller of the school. Yeah, exactly. Miss Pretty. And I really like the fact that you catch us up with this conversation with between Felicia and Pretty um, to kind of get us going um, back at it after a little bit of a break. But this is a great place to start within your series. You can start in The Serpent in Heaven. Yeah. Have no problem whatsoever catching up very quickly on what happens. Um, and I think that's really important as a series writer. Um, do, you do you feel like you kind of owe it to the readers that they should be able to jump into the middle of the series and not be fully lost? I try to make it that way because I've done that before uh, when I picked up a book not knowing it was in the middle of a series and I appreciated getting enough cues to catch me up to where I could go on and read that book. I think it's kind of frustrating to be enjoying a book and then you think, but I'm not really getting the flavor of it because I haven't read any of the previous ones. Exactly. And you're kind of a master of being able to, you are a master of being able to catch us up really very quickly and to succinctly give us an idea of your world uh, without having to do a lot of re-world building. Um, which I think um, takes a, a, a keen, keen sense of, of the craft, because I think that that is very hard to do. A lot of, of 
writers tend to struggle with with world building, um, probably giving us 50, 60 pages of world building yet again in the second book if they're going to catch us up. And you managed to do it within a matter of pages. I, I'm really curious what the, is it experience or is it, is, what is it that you do that, that you're able to do so well, I guess? Oh, well, uh, thank you first, uh, because I'll take that. Um, every, every writer has a massive insecurity uh, that, that they try to hide, but it pops out all the time. I, it's, it's really experience and also about reading as a writer. Uh, as you know, probably, I read very voraciously, but I, I like to think that I'm also learning, even, um, even if every now and then it's what I shouldn't do. But I'm always learning from writers who I think have a particular skill that I don't have. And I think that is a great way to go about it. I think you need to read not only for the plot and the dialogue and the pleasure of it, but if you're a writer, you can learn from, from other writers and it's just a joy to do that. Absolutely. And this book is such, um, such an exciting nonstop, you know, it takes, you reintroduce us to Felicia and then really shortly thereafter, um, about two or three chapters in, you know, you're taking us on a whirlwind adventure where it's nonstop action point to point to point to point to the very end where um, I don't want to spoil it, but I've got to say that you landed an ending that left me in complete shock, and I loved that. I'm polishing, <laughs> polishing my knuckles here. Thank you. Um, and we can't talk about it, obviously, because we don't want to spoil it. Nobody's read it yet, but not everybody's read it yet. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we're wanting to, you know, um, this, this is such a great um, and such an exciting book, um, but it's hard not to spoil a lot. Um, so I'm gonna ask a few questions a little bit on your writing a little bit and a little bit okay. building within it. Um, and one of the things that I was really intrigued with was the fact that, um, you know, you managed to succinctly divide out the United States in a very clear format what was the idea and the impetus behind, you know, Britannia on the east and the Holy Roman Empire or the Russian Empire on the on the east coast? You know, the Midwest is new, new, um, new America, new America, and then of course Texas and Oklahoma being its own place, and then the South, Dixie, Dixie exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, what made you decide to do that? It just seemed uh, logical to me when I thought about how the how America would divide, especially in the 30s. Mm -hmm. uh, I figured that Canada would come down, Mexico would come up, and what was left in the central part of the U.S. would be divided uh, along along old fault lines. So the original 13 colonies minus Georgia would become Britannia. 
the South would become Dixie because it hadn't been that long since they were Dixie. Uh, New America would be the Plains. And, and then uh, with the Russian family landing in California, California and Oregon became uh, the Holy Russian Empire. And it really changes the, the construct of what we think would be the United States, obviously. Um, and <laughs> I think that it makes it really interesting because it allows almost a European sense of history uh, and political intrigue within the United States. And maybe we don't think of, of, of the United States as being that um, politically, um, maybe, I, I, gosh, that's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to say, but, uh, or explain kind of that political or fiefdom level of, of, of intrigue, almost Game of Thrones-esque is about <laughs> and, and fighting and how do you play with these different political parties um and i found that really fascinating i i think that that's part of the joy of reading this series is kind of having this this political pull depending on on where gunny is well the the laws are different everywhere the level of prosperity is different everywhere. The economy is different and the military system is different. Mm -hmm. So I, I've really had to do a lot of thinking, which is good because I think it helps keep your mind agile. I had COVID twice and for a while I thought I was never going to finish that book. Never, ever, ever. Yeah. And it's the, which one, the Russian cage or the serpent and the serpent in heaven. Gotcha. Um, well, I think you, I think you did a fantastic job with it. And I love the fact that you decided to pull away from Gunny for quite a bit of the book. Um, she's more of a side character within this one and our really yeah. focuses on Felicia. Did you find that a little bit invigorating in terms of focusing uh, on character? Well, at my age, trying to think myself into being a 15-year-old girl was a real adventure. <laughs> I don't miss being 15 at all. I can tell you that. It was almost scarily easy to remember what it had been like a lot of insecurity. I mean, Felicia has a lot of insecurity within everything that's going on. But on top of that, she's having to deal with kind of a rush of everything. Everything's yes. happening all at once for her. It, uh, and she doesn't even know who she is uh, mm -hmm. in any sense of the, in any sense of the word. She has no idea who she is beyond the fact that she's a survivor and that she can do whatever's necessary to keep her that way. Exactly. Everything else is up for grabs. And, and, you know, she's got her roommate that's particularly difficult to deal with, at least at first, <laughs> you know, until they, they, you know, and, and, you know, she's got a, a young man that she's interested in and, but not really quite sure how to, uh, navigate those fields quite yet so she's still getting a feel for it um and i think she i think it's really a lot of fun because you're you're reintroducing us to this this world with somebody who's just um who could be just as clueless as as an entry reader into this series yeah but she's a lot more powerful that's exactly it oh my gosh she really is um how 
now when you're containing or creating magic, how do you manage to sort of prevent the, the Superman complex that you can do or fall into really easily with using a magic system? Well, hmm. I don't think anyone in here in any of my books is as strong as Superman. Uh, and even Superman's not invulnerable, obviously. But uh, I think that I was, and I was talking about this just yesterday. Uh, you have to have a sense of checks and balances. You have to have, uh, no one can be too powerful and too overwhelming uh, that someone doesn't have a chance of overcoming them. Uh, there has to be, well, I guess that's the basis of all movies, really, that there has to be a weakness. There has to be a way to conquer uh, your opponent. Exactly. And I, that's one of the hard things about world building. And I think kudos to you as a writer writing um, what I'd really call paranormal um, thrillers, I guess. Yeah, these really are thrillers. Um, that you have to have that, not only do you have to have that ticking time bomb and that sense of what makes a thriller a thriller, but also enough of that world building, enough of that fantasy world building that really um, I find uh, fascinating within your books because you have to, you have to keep all of those in balance as you're writing through this. You do. And, and I'm just curious, how do you manage to do that? How do you, how do you, what, what is it that you're doing to, to keep those both in line, to make sure that's not too thriller? It, it still continues to have that combination, I guess, of genre. I have to say it's pretty instinctive. Uh, I wish I had codified what I do in my head so I could tell people easily, uh, this is how I do it, step one, step two, step three. Uh, but I have never gotten that technical uh, with what I do. It's more instinctive. Yeah. And after so many years of writing, I mean, you have a small library of books behind you. And, you know, from Harper to Sookie, of course, to, um, you know, Aurora Tea Garden, who's really a, a really, those are a fabulous set of mysteries. Um, you've really written the gambit over the years. Um, storytelling is just within you, isn't it? It is. And my whole career has been based on keeping myself from being bored. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, if I've, if I've written a series too long, I, I begin to feel I'm getting stale and that's no good for me and it's no good for the reader. So I have to do something else to kind of rejuvenate my interest in, in my livelihood. Absolutely. Now, throughout the years, I mean, you're, all of your series have had huge popularity. Um, I know that certain series kind of grew after the fact. <laughs> yeah you know i i'm re really a huge fan of your aurora tea gardens book series and oh thank so, you so when hallmark ended up turning them into movies i felt boy i mean that's a good launch pad of people into your careers uh into your and into your writing um and they're such great traditional mysteries um 
but you've you've written everything and you write steamy you write violent you write you know chaste you write just about everything under the sun um that story must the storytelling must be within you i guess so it's really all i can do uh so it's lucky i've got that isn't it uh, i'm not very good at at so many other things now what what inspired you to become a writer what made you decide hey i'm gonna pick up the pen and i'm gonna i'm gonna write a book that's all I ever wanted to do, PK. Uh, I always just wanted to be a writer. And I'm just extremely fortunate that events fell my way so that I could do that. Did you find that it was tough breaking into the industry as, as a budding writer? Um, you know, the answer is no. Uh, and you can just hate me. Uh, because I was I was there extremely fortunate when I married my second husband he offered me the option of staying home instead of getting another job because I had to relocate uh, to marry him and he gave me uh, this was high tech then he gave me an electric typewriter for a wedding present and told me to write the book that I wanted to write and you know he's really glad he did that now <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it was a golden opportunity, and I knew it. A, a lot of people don't ever get that that economic moment of freedom. Yeah. And I took advantage of it, and uh, that book got published. So, you know, writing a book cover to cover, it's amazing um, what that does in terms of if you're a budding writer, just taking that risk and and finishing that book, right? Yes. That, that's it. So many budding writers ignore the fact that they will never sell a book they haven't finished. Uh, that's my advice to everyone who asked me for writing advice, which I, you know, I never do understand anyway. But um, first, do your homework. I mean, you can find out online anything now, how to find an agent how to write a query letter it's all there it isn't a big mystery like it was when i was coming up uh and i just it's so easily available if all you know if you plug in there and do your your due process uh you'll you'll gain knowledge and if you gain knowledge you're in a good position to to make what you want to come true come true at least give it a good shot absolutely i remember um when I was doing library work and, and bring people over to the Jeff Herman guide to literary agents. And I think it still gets published every few years, but boy, the, it has a list of every literary agent that you want and what to write with a query letter and what they're good at and what they're not good at so that you can, you know, if you're doing a, a, a thriller uh, alternate history, um, book you know who to plug that book to or who that agency yeah that could could do that how long have you been with your agent now in terms of you've been with them for quite a while haven't you i've been with joshua for longer than i've had my daughter yeah yeah so uh, find somebody who works with you yes and someone whose honesty and integrity you respect for me that's key and Joshua has been, he's the only agent I've ever had, and he'll be the only agent I ever have because 
we know and understand each other. Now he's got his own agency now and he's got quite a few people working for him. And I think that's just wonderful. But you two sort of started out together, which was exciting. We did. We did. <laughs> he uh, he was with Scott Meredith when I was first introduced to him by a writing acquaintance whose agent he was. Uh, and then Scott Meredith had their bloodbath when Scott Meredith died and the new management fired everyone. So, uh, but I stuck with Joshua rather than with the agency because I figured I knew him. This is Joshua Bilmis I'm talking about for anybody who doesn't know who he is. Uh, and I've never been sorry. Uh, I've always been glad I stuck with him. You know, and it's fun because when you develop that relationship, they understand <clears throat> some of the challenges that you have with your writing or that they'll, they're a good kind of beta reader for your books to take a look at and say, hey, a good first eye. But you also have a group of readers that you really rely on. I do. You, um, <clears throat> first part of the process. Um, how important are they to your, to your process? And were there any things that you really changed within Serpent of Heaven because of their feedback? Sure. Uh, and I did, I just finished the, the sequel book and they've been especially helpful with that. Uh, my, my beta readers are uh, Tony Kellner, who, who writes this Lee Perry now, L-E-I-G-H, and my good friend Dana Cameron, who has a new book out, uh, will have a new book out in December. And they, we've been friends for a very long time. And I think we're pretty good at telling each other the truth in a non-hurtful way mm -hmm. because we love each other. So it's really a, a benefit to friends like that to tell them the truth, but not tell them in a, a way that makes them feel like they made a mistake. Exactly. Well, sometimes you can take a look and say, oh, would, would so-and-so say this? Or would they say it like this? Should we, you know, and, and those sort of things can kind of help because it, it moves along the tone and keeps a level of consistency within the character. I agree. And, and there is no one so good that they can't benefit from editing. Uh, Tony and I edited a series of anthologies a few years ago, we had a wonderful time doing it, and they sold really well for a while. And we only got one story in that whole time, maybe maybe 12 to 20 stories per book, and we edited like six books. We only got one story that did not need any change whatsoever. Now, speaking of that, I mean, that's something that's really fascinating as well as editing these fan anthologies. Uh, Patrick Milliken, who might pop on in a little bit um he edited a book called phoenix noir and of course uh one of the authors submitted a uh short story that was basically a novella <laughs> uh our local yeah. diana uh who who does not have a, a short short book in her body i don't think uh-huh <laughs> um and but you know we're she worked with Patrick and they edited it down a little bit and, and then brought it down for the book. Um, do you enjoy that process of actually being the editor in that situation? I do. And I think it's a great learning process too. Oh my gosh. I could see my own faults echoed in other people's work. And I thought, oh, 
okay, so maybe I better not do that anymore either. <laughs> um, it, it really does help. Uh, you feel like you're making something smooth and, and shiny uh, out of something that was maybe a little rough around the edges. And it's a really good feeling to think that you've benefited the story. Uh, and most writers were really, really good about it. Uh, no sulking, no pouting. <laughs> uh, there was one writer who said, you know, she she thought her story was fine and she would just withdraw it rather than change it. And we said, okay, that's great. Uh, yeah, that I mean, if, if they feel that passionate about it, right? But well, she was civil throughout. Mm -hmm. And that is the the key mark of a professional, I think. Absolutely. Now, as you're putting those books together, as you're putting the anthologies together, do you feel like as a reader, I tend to, I tend to skip around when I read an anthology, uh -huh. but as the editor, did you have a, a, an idea from beginning to end, maybe uh, putting together themes or anything like that, that with your books or, or did you just sort of put them in alphabetical order or what sort of order did you put them in? Was there any intent for a reading order, I guess? Yes. Uh, all our anthologies were themed and we had a big consultation about the order in which they would appear in the book. Okay. Uh, because we had to alternate. We couldn't have our strongest contenders all huddled together. Mm -hmm. We had to spread them out uh, and put not the weaker stories maybe but the less dramatic stories uh had to had to have space to breathe too so we put a lot of thought into the order that's good to know because i usually i usually skip around as the reader so to go through and and know that that you take a lot of time and effort to do that one of the things that i found fascinating is there's a lot of difference between novel writing and short story writing oh so much I feel like short story writing is actually harder to do than novel writing in some respects. I agree 100%. It's, it's one of those things where you have to keep beginning, middle, and an end in what, six, seven, eight, maybe 12, 15 pages. It depends on, on your, your style, but still a very finite number of pages, whereas you get to kind of expand and elaborate within a novel. You can go off topic if you decide to. No, no uh, diversions in a short story. You have to set your sights on the end and march straight towards it. Exactly. So with that coming through, what is it that you've pulled in from short story writing that you take into your novel writing? Uh, cutting words, cutting extra words. Uh, I noticed that there are a lot of extra phrases and curly cues I put in that are not necessary and divert from the story. So I became a little better about cutting those out uh, because it's not the word count that's important. It's the, the skill of the writing. Yeah. You always are a master of showing rather than telling. And I think that one of the things I really love about the Gunny Rose series is the fact that you really show us through character, through dialogue, through action, um, 
what's going on in this world and the importance of and the differences within it, uh, along with the alternate history, which is really fascinating. I, I, I'm always amazed by people who can uh, take our history and reshape it. Uh, I think that that's such a skill. It's such a, a fascinating skill. And, and, but you do that within the Gunny Rose series. And um, I think you do it spectacularly well. Um, was, there, was there some sort of insight of how you needed to shape and do this world building? Because you do it very clearly, but very succinctly. Well, it's there again, part of that is just experience. What I do is determine my main character and what I want them to be doing. Mm -hmm. And then I build the world to facilitate that action. Mm -hmm. Because they, the protagonist has to be able to move through that world, completing her arc unimpeded, or at least not so impeded that she can't finish. Right. Now, is has this series been optioned at all? Have you talked to? Twice, twice. So, you know, uh, but whether anything will come of it or not, who knows? Uh, and also the Harper books have been optioned in canada so we'll see but that you know these things just seem to drag on and on and on and on uh, until finally i think they forget they've even got them and i do too <laughs> usually they do until later on when somebody else wants to try to buy them right and then yep you yep know, and discovering that they're tied up a little bit now you've had the option of working with hollywood in two very different um with two very different organizations, HBO for the True Blood series and the Hallmark series for your Aurora Tea Garden. And NBC for the Midnight Texas series. Texas, exactly. Um, and each of those I've heard uh, were very different experiences. Oh, golly, yes. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm glad HBO was first because it turned out to be uh, in a lot of ways, the hardest. Uh, and it was really sink or swim when they brought me out to go to the premiere, which was great. I'd been on set once before when they were filming in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And I'd done an appearance with them at Comic Con, which was absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. The level of security when you're with a bunch of beautiful people who are in a TV show is just horrendous. Anyway, they invited me to come to the premiere and I did. Uh, I brought my family. We got to stay at the Four Seasons. Uh, we were super impressed with ourselves and we got to ride in a limo. And then it started being a little Hollywoodish because it wasn't time for our limo to be there. So we had to circle the block over and over <laughs> until it was our time slot. So we pull in and no one has told me this. Uh, we all scramble out of the limo and we're heading into the theater when a handler catches me and says, oh no, you've got to do the red carpet. And I thought, well, hell, I would have worn different shoes if I'd known I was going to have to stand up all, all evening. <laughs> Uh, so I thought, but I don't know what to, I don't know what to, 
Okay, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> they, so they, it, they don't teach you that while you're getting your MFA or while you're writing. No, right? they don't say here are strangers who don't know who you are, but they have to ask you questions and you have to answer them. Yeah. And I would not want to be one of those interviewers because the handler would step forward and say, this is the writer. And they would go, okay. And they would autom they would start spewing out questions. And I was going, this is a skill I do, do not have. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Um, and something that you're probably, you weren't expecting to do, kind of being thrust. No, I was not expecting to do it in any way whatsoever. I was not expecting to do it. So in terms, I would assume that going from HBO to going to Hallmark for the, the Aurora Tea Garden, for instance, there's a real difference in terms of probably the level of uh, probably uh, the way they handle premieres and, and the yeah. way they, they, you know, launch a, a movie. Um, do you find Completely. it different? Completely different. Uh Hallmark and NBC did not have a premiere as such. HBO just made a big deal out of True Blood because I think they knew they had something really good on their hands. But that's not Hallmark's thing. Hallmark hired Candace, who is such a, a favorite uh, among all the Hallmark viewers. And that really went a long way to ensuring its success. And then the production company, Muse Production, they were just so warm and welcoming to me. It was just really nice. Uh, I had a wonderful time. I was on set a couple of times, I think. My husband and I were in one of the movies. Uh, but then, of course, the movies went way beyond the TV, my books, uh, into land that I didn't recognize. But they were welcome to do so. I mean, they had their own thing going. And as long as I get the screen that says from the books by Charlene Harris, I'm I'm happy because that helps the sales of the book. Absolutely. And it introduces people to you and introduces them to um, your style of writing. And uh, I'm always amazed at, at the variations of Charlene Harris that we get throughout the years and the different from the different series, um, but always high quality, always enjoyable. And one of the things I truly love about your books, not only in this series, I'm blown away with your world building, but really I'm also blown away with your characters. Your characters are so likable and so enjoyable. Um, do you, in terms of writing them, I mean, they really feel like real people. Do you sit around and while you're at, getting a cup of coffee or something are you listening in on people's conversations are you how you, you know it you know it <laughs> writers are all eavesdroppers uh you know uh i used to follow people around so i could hear the end of a conversation i know that's weird but when you're just starting out you're learning what people are like and it is just fascinating just fascinating I would I would say because you have you get the dialogue, but you also get the sense of character, and all of your main characters are always likable. I mean, you always make sure that there's something redeeming about them. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
versus kind of a trend that's been going on has been to you know write characters that nobody no you you don't like any of them you don't like any of them but yet they manage to and that's something I really appreciate with your books is that you always have characters that I instantly like and I instantly recognize well I don't want to spend two or three hundred pages with someone I don't like so I always try to give them give them something that I, I hope people will relate to or find endearing or redeeming. So you were you said you were before you became a big writer. Obviously, um, you were doing a, a job before that. What what did you do before becoming a writer? Well, I I had a really good degree from a really good college, so I wasn't really qualified to do anything. Uh, during my first marriage, uh, my husband went back to college on the GI Bill, so I was the wage earner, and I didn't know how to do anything, but eventually I found a job in an offset dark room in a small newspaper in Mississippi where I stood in the dark all day on concrete uh, with lots of chemicals, lots of chemicals, and at that time, you took a, a giant picture of the whole page of the paper, and then you developed the page. And that was what I did. Uh, I learned how, and I was able to do it. But I certainly would not recommend that as a career path. It's it was a good it was a good impetus when you you got your electric typewriter to sit there and and write out the book and be like I don't so much. Yeah, I don't, I do not want to go back into the dark room. And then I worked for a small ad agency as a typesetter for a while. So will Anna and another newspaper as a typesetter. So three jobs, none of which I excelled. Uh, and I was never really what you would call a, a wonderful employee, frankly. One of the one of the problems of being a bookseller and enjoying doing it for Barbara all these years has been that, uh, you know, I read all these great books. And so for me, you know, I'm just a voracious reader, uh, you know, a couple books a week at least. Um, and that's on a slow week. And, you know, there's so many great authors out there. Are there any that you find that are particularly enjoyable that you uh, absolutely love? Yes, there are. and. Uh, I also want to point out on my website, I have a feature called Book and Blog, okay. where I talk about the books I've read. I don't write it with any regularity, unfortunately. Uh, so it might be three weeks, it might be two months, but there will be a list of the books I've read and enjoyed. And I give a little synopsis of each one uh, with why I liked it. Uh, the books I don't like, I don't even talk about because you know, nobody needs that. But I do. Uh, I love Jody Taylor. I would read any I've read every single thing she's ever written. And I really like Sarah Painter. Yeah. Uh, oh, man, she is so good. So good. I thought I saw that you uh, might have posted about Daniel O'Malley's Blitz. Oh, I love Daniel O'Malley. I love him. I was, I just interviewed him and I've got to say that um, that book was phenomenal, part of that, that uh, series. And so I was excited to see that you enjoyed it as well. 
that you do. Oh, so much. We did an event together uh, and it uh, online, but you know, still it was the first time we have been corresponding with each other for quite some while. So it was really nice to see him and find out we had the same hairdo. <laughs> I really had such a good time that night. To oh, me, that's that's just one of the best things about being a writer. You get to talk to other writers. And it's a small world because when I interviewed him, um, Solari Gentle, who happens to be one of his neighbors, uh, she was just at our store for writers and residents and then uh, was there. And it's a small world. It really is. The writing world is a, a, a really neat, small world. Um, and one of the things I love is that you and, and so many other authors, when you go to a convention, you know, you just go up to the bar and you can just say hi and have just a regular conversation. Um, which oh, is, sure. Which is just fun, you know, um, which is probably why it was such a surprise when you went to the um, the premiere, right? Or to Comic-Con and had the- Oh, hand. yeah. That's such a, a collaborative effort with so many minds beating at yours, uh, whereas writing is a solitary occupation. Yeah. So you have to really switch gears pretty quick to do things like that. So as, as such, and writing is such sort of a, a weird business to begin with, you are you just said that you just finished the novel right after the serpent in heaven uh-huh um and now you're having to go back and talk about the serpent serpent in heaven how difficult is that do you have to go back and reread your own book before release you know sometimes i do uh because i forget what happened i've written a, you know quite a few books and I'm also in my 70s, so I don't maybe remember quite as well as I used to. Uh, one thing I did during the pandemic was read all the Sookie books over again, because every now and then someone will ask me a question about them that I can't answer. Right, exactly. And Or do you have that fan that you can go to and ask a question about something? I do. Tell you? Yes, most most often I haven't had to hit her up in a long time, but she was just my beacon. Uh, in fact, some of my really ardent readers who I had bonded with would sit in the front row, and if I was answering something wrong, they'd go, "What <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, hey, hey, hey." Yeah. <laughs> I'd say, "What's the right answer?" And they would know. <laughs> you know. Uh, Lori King always had a fun response to that when she would get a response if you got something wrong in a book. And that was, you know, her character uh, was translating Mary Russell's letters. And so she said, oh, well, we got that mistranslated. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought that was a very clever response to something, you know, because you will have those readers that will, will point those out me, I never, I never figure those out. I'm too, I get myself too involved with the plot and the character to care. You know, that it's a mixed blessing having readers who are so uh, detail oriented, shall we say, uh, and they will point things out to you and you think, look, I wrote the book, I made the mistake. It was proofread twice, no one caught it. 
the copy editor didn't catch it. My editor didn't catch it. The typesetter didn't catch it. Nobody caught it except you. <laughs> it was it was it was the Starbucks cup in the background, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, wait, he was her grandnephew, not her great grandnephew. Exactly. So um what can you can you leak what you would like the next book to be titled at all? I have a really good title for it. Unfortunately, I can't remember what it is. <laughs> All the dead shall weep. All the dead shall weep. Ooh, yeah, title. That is. A Thank good you. I thought of that one. I thought of the titles for for this series, and I'm really, you know, I'm coming on strong with that. The uh, I really didn't get to name most of the the Sookie books, and uh, I'm really I'm feeling good about these titles and my covers for this series. Absolutely, um, Patrick. Do you happen to be online by any chance? There he is. I sure do. And yeah. the mystery of the legend. Um, do you have any um, online, online questions? Um, yeah. Well, let's see. Um, you have a lot of really great fans. I'm sure you already know that, but uh, I, I do. <laughs> um, well, a couple of questions that have come in. One is about Lily Bard. Um, any chance that she might make an encore appearance at some point? I've written. I wrote a Lily Bard short story. Uh, for the first time, it's the first time I've written about Lily in a long time, and the rights have reverted to me for that story, so it may be popping up somewhere soon, and, and I'll put it on my website and on Facebook uh, if it does. Uh, I'll never write another full-length Lily. That comes from a really dark place in my life uh -huh. that I, I don't really want to go back to. Right, right. Um, also, um, there was a question about the collaboration that you did with uh, Christopher Golden for three books, uh, the Cemetery Girl trilogy. Uh-huh. What was that like? You know, uh, Christopher and I actually talked about this in a bar, which is really rare for me because I, you know, I don't go to the bar too much, but I was telling him this idea I had for a story and he said, that really sounds good. And I said, yeah, but I just don't have time to write it. Uh, and I'm not really sure how that would work out in a novel format. So he emailed me after a month or two and he said, you know, I've been thinking about that idea. What about a graphic novel? And I said, oh, I've never done that, but I don't like to be scared of a challenge. I said, if you will do it with me, uh, I would love to do that not knowing what I was letting myself in for. And I may say, Christopher probably could have thrown me down the stairs a few times by the time we got to the end of that, because that was a rough learning process for me. Well worth doing. Uh, and I'm, I really do like the way the, the graphic novels turned out, but really hard, it, it was really hard for me to learn. It's a real different process, isn't it? It's a lot more like screenwriting, isn't it? It must be. I've never written a screenplay, but uh, you just have to write the what the characters are saying, not what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten so used to doing transitions like she left the cabin and walked down the path. And now that's not my job anymore. The artist will do that. Mm -hmm. Did they get anything wrong by any chance or interpreted differently, I guess, than from what you were? 
thought pro yours and Christopher's thought process was? No, uh, the first artist was especially good. Then we had to get a different artist and I can't even remember why. And uh, there was a big gap between books one and two and book three. Uh, I wasn't quite as uh, enthralled with the art book in book three, but uh, other people liked it just fine. That's so subjective. It is. It's really tough to to get a good feel for it. And consistency can be hard, especially within that field. Yes. Are there any types of novels or bit or projects that you've always kind of wanted to tr take a, a stab at, but have never, have never, for whatever reason, been able to do yet? Yes. I always wanted to write a book as scary as The Haunting of Hill House. Ah. Uh, or The Cabin at the End of the World. That was boy, that was scary too. That scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, I don't really read that much horror, but I, it's so powerful if that you can, that a writer can affect you that way. And I thought, oh, I wish I could really scare people. So far that just hasn't happened. I haven't had the idea to hang that on. Maybe someday. Maybe. Yeah. Um, let's see, anything else coming in? Third place. St have you read Stephen Graham Jones by any chance, Charlene? Give me some titles. Um, the, only good uh, the Only Good Indians. No, I haven't read him. Or My Heart is, uh, what is it, Patrick? It was My Heart yeah. Chainsaw. Anyway. I'm, I'm drawing a blank too. Anyways, great, great horror, but boy scary and uh i just think he does a great job though of, of talking about um kind of living on the native american res uh-huh problems that they're dealing with on the native american res and then using horror as an element of of getting us to kind of understand some of that process it was, it was it's fascinating anyways sorry i digress You've already talked a little bit about about some of your favorite writers. Are there anybody recently that you've read that you would like to to point out? Any? I just read, uh, and this is a bit unusual for me. Um, I just read a romance by Christina Lauren, and it was really good. It was called uh, "The Unhoneymooners," uh, and it's very cleverly written with a lot of really good understanding of human nature uh i really enjoyed that book thoroughly and had a great respect for her great well pk i think that's really about it for the questions a lot of them are just comments about from fans talking about how much they love your books and what which books they like the best and <laughs> yeah you have a great community of, of readers. <laughs> i do everybody has a different opinion right of of what is the best series um however i've got to say right now this is the best series <laughs> yay <laughs> so for those of you who do want to buy a signed copy charlene was kind enough to sign a whole bunch of copies for yeah. us you can, yeah yeah and she she signs in a very legible penmanship which i know weird huh uh, it is. It isn't like the, you know, the squiggle. Um, so you can buy those through us. It's a great help because it does help us produce more and more of these programs that we're doing online for all of you. 
Uh, you can also go to poisonpen.com and buy some poison pen merch. Of course, we've got hoodies and sweaters and all sorts of fun stuff as well, or other books. But really, the main book you should be buying tonight is The Serpent in Heaven. Um, Charlene, if people are wanting to get a hold of you or ask you questions, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, there's my Facebook page. I have a professional Facebook page. There's my website. Um, they can always contact my assistant, bffpaula at yahoo.com. They can contact my publicist at, really, it's just too easy to get in touch with me. Uh, my publicist at Simon and Schuster, uh, Julia McGarry, my agent Joshua Bilmes. Oh, people just have too much access to me. <laughs> Fantastic! Well, congratulations on this book. This was it. Really, was a fun read. Uh, unfortunately, we can't expose too much because I don't want to spoil what is probably one of the best adventures I've read in a really long time. Aww. So, Sherling, congratulations. You really deserve a pat on the back and uh, two thumbs up for this book. This was really an awesome book. And I can't wait oh. for people to get to the ending um, because, boy, boy, you knocked that one right out of the park. Well, thank you so much. I feel like my head can fill up this room now. <laughs> <laughs> I've so enjoyed this so much. I really appreciate you asking me. Tell Barbara I said, hey. We will. Absolutely. Charlene, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great evening and congratulations on the book and enjoy the book tour. Thank you, guys. I hope you sell all of those books. We will. We Take will. care. Thanks so Bye -bye. much. Everybody. Bye -bye. Good night, everybody. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.